Welcome to Community Coded, the ultimate podcast series for founders, VCs, and builders who master the art of community building. This podcast is brought to you by Threado, a community management platform that lets you drive more engagement, identify brand champions, and scale a thriving community with automated workflows and personalized messages. We're so proud to say that we serve fast-growing community-led startups like Notion, Mixpanel, Triple Whale, and more. What are you waiting for? Hit threader.com and up your community game. Now, let's talk about this podcast. Join us as we dive deep into the world of community building with some of the biggest names in the industry. Let's decode what it takes to build a thriving community. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the Community Decoded podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, uh, dubbed as community legend by a lot of folks. And this person <laughs> I met, I met in person in last year at CMX, and I, I attended his talk as well. It is true. It is true. It is, uh, you know, it is definitely true. Uh, this person has so much insight in community building that we all can learn about. And uh, on that note, Richard Millington, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling fl flattered. I'm going to be honest. That was a very flattering introduction. I don't know if I can live up to it, but I really appreciate your kind your kind words. And so, thank you so much for that. No, no, I'm I'm just spitting facts here. So <laughs> it's not me. It's like what everybody else thinks, right? Because I think, see, the posts you post on LinkedIn and the insights you share, especially uh, around how to crack how to crack that data driven approach of building a community, is something very insightful, right? So. Uh, again, you know, spitting facts, but for folks who don't know Richard, let me give you guys like a brief intro. Richard is a founder, author, and, and a speaker. Like, you know, he's, he's spoken to like what so many conferences around the world. Uh, he founded Favorbee, which is like a community consulting agency, which I want to dive a little deeper about because yeah. so far I've been interviewing people who worked as as community leaders in a particular company or creators who are community builders building courses and whatnot. So this is my first time getting into that consulting uh, arena. So I'm excited to like dive a little we bit. More about that yeah. 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 I, 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 I have no clue about community consulting. So I'm completely like, you <laughs> know, coming from a place where uh, I want to learn from you. So, and fewer be, Wow, you guys achieved so much in 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 this whole community building space. You've worked with you know popular brands like Google, World Bank, Oracle, Amazon, Apple, like so on and so forth. I can go on and on. And Richard also wrote like pretty popular books, uh, Build Your Community and Buzzing Communities, like two of two of the popular books in the community space. And one thing I personally like about Richard is that he shares these strategies, principles, and tactics that are data driven. And that's something like, you know, uh, I want to unpack as well about your writing, your speaking and whatnot. But sure. that's the intro. But yeah, before we dive in right off the bat, uh, talk to me about I, I kind of researched on you uh, a lot before the podcast. And I know the answer uh, of how you <laughs> got into community. But I want to hear more details about how you fell in love with the community space. Like what was, what was your first interaction 
in your in your journey as a community builder okay this is wow this is super fascinating i love that question because many people have asked like you know how did you get involved in the community space i can hear an echo on this i don't know if that's the thing um many people have asked like in the past how did you get involved in the community space but no one's ever asked how did you fall in love with it because i think that's a different answer right and i absolutely i I first got involved in the community space in the gaming space and it's interesting a lot of like the people who I really admire and respect in the community space today came from video gaming back in the day because it was so far ahead back then like gaming I think when did we all get involved like between like two or maybe between like 99 and like 2002 that was like when this you know competitive gaming came along and high speed internet was coming along and you could suddenly like log on to like a server and compete against people around the world. And I quickly discovered I wasn't so good at, um, at playing games, but I was very interested in all the communities that were growing up around the games. And so I began like managing some communities in that space. And that was like really exciting. I got involved there just volunteering and helping out and managing. And then uh, after university, um, I did an internship with Seth Seth Godin, who some of your audience might 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 know, like fantastic um, being. Such a legend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, he's a genius on another level. You know, when you talk about a, a legend, that's who I think about. You know, um, and so then after that, I began like the fee, the uh, Fever B blog and sharing stuff I learned from the game the gaming space. And I think what a lot of us realize is that all these things that worked in the gaming sector also work for so many other kinds of communities as well. And there's this knowledge gap between where the gaming sector was and where like the regular brands were, which I think a lot of us were mm. able to help um, fill. And so that's the journey we've been on. Like it's been incredible. And I think my mm. real love for community came right at the beginning. The idea that sitting at a computer, like it sounds so dumb now because we're so used to it, but the idea that you can sit at a computer and talk to people around the world was incredible right. and i spent right. so much time on irc you know internet relay chat which honestly is a lot like slack now um it's amazing how similar <laughs> that is um, but so much time in chat rooms like not even talking about the game but just talking about people mm. i considered my peers and i got closer to them than like my friends at school and it was like that's how i fell in love with it i just i felt i'd found a tribe mm. to which i belonged and i think that was where the love for it came uh, came from yeah, I feel you're not the first person to say that. I've interviewed many people, uh, even David Spinks. Uh, I brought him on the podcast. Yeah. And his love towards community really started from online gaming. Exactly. Like, So even Ryan Hoover, uh, he started like yeah. thinking about community from from his childhood days because he spoke to like so many people who are playing the same game like he was playing. So yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like there should be... Uh, a video series or something like you know unpacking what is like that that correlation or like the the thing that impacted like most of the folks in the community space about online gaming right so uh and to your point i also want to acknowledge what you said about it is fascinating to meet people you've never met in life and actually have a conversation thanks to the internet thank, thanks to these tools that bring us together thanks to social media it's quite fascinating right like i have 
I've been, I think we take it so granted about these things because we live day in, day out, like talking on Zoom calls with so many people. Yeah. But we all have to really like step back and acknowledge the fact that it is even a possibility right now. Like 20, 30 years ago, you have to go buy a ticket, hop on a plane to actually go meet someone, right? That's like the scenario or like you, you kind of like pick up a telephone, but this is, this is like the age I feel. That's why I think a lot of, lot many people are fascinated to build communities in the first place because it's, it's the possibility is so uh, common, right? So just want to acknowledge that. Uh, I think what's really interesting and something that, that changed at some point, I don't know when it changed, is that it used to be, when I was growing up, I was like 15 or 16, I remember my parents being really worried about the people I was talking to on the internet. There's like a stranger danger thing, if you remember this, you know, like you never trust someone you've met on the internet. Even if you've been talk, talking yep. to them for years, you know, you never trust someone. There's this whole stranger right. danger thing. And at some point that changed. I mean, it changed to such an extent, you know, when I was young as a kid, we are told, never get into a car with a stranger. Yes. And now we're calling the car to us so we can get in it, right? Like <laughs> with Airbnb, we are saying the homes are strangers. And I think at some point it changed. Like, I don't right. know the exact moment, but I think now you just kind of, you know, I've had clients uh, I've never met. I have people that work mm. for me now that I've never met in person. And that's, that's incredible. And I don't know when that happened, but I do yeah. think today there's definitely a thing where, there's people that I've been talking to for years and years and years, you know, that I've never mm. met and I trust them. And I, I think that's, I don't know when it happened, but I'm always so fascinated by it. Yeah, me too. I think, yeah, it's, we, we, we both have a lot in that particular area, you know, a common, I think, ideology. Uh, again, thanks. Shout out to the internet. Like, you know, this evolution is still growing and, you know, we haven't even met like close to anybody right like there are so many people out there and we're still yeah, yeah. in the early stage. that's why the the space itself is in early uh so a quick question on on the online gaming front right and going back to your answer so you fall in love man this is fascinating whatever it is like through forums or anything that you know you manage these communities when did you realize that you have a knack for it there is the the hobby piece is different from you know making it as a career piece right like um okay this is something for sure that i will pursue like take take a lot of kids like you know even we can relate as well we start a lot of things as hobbies like playing sports for example or uh doing certain things so like buying or like you know putting a laminate stand something like that right like just think out loud but those are all like stay temporary, you know, we, we won't do what we did in the past right now. We single-handedly only focus on one thing, right? So when did you realize that, man, I can make a career out of it. Like this is where I want to go for sure. I think to be honest, I never thought it was going to work. Um, I had like, you know, it was around 2008, I think, when I started the blog, like the Fever Bee blog. And by the way, you should look up the way it looked then. It was like this really ugly type pad blog. <laughs> and I was just sharing things I'd learned about community. I had like a PR blog before that, but like I was sharing mm. things I'd learned about the community space, like just quick tips. 
and because I was such a fan of like Seth Godin at that time, I was copying like his style of like one post a day. And I was doing that mm. up until like a year ago, actually, like one short post yeah. a day was generally the theme. Right? Mm. Um, and when did I think it would make a living? Uh, when I began getting clients from it, like it was never mm. actually the goal. Like the, the reason I started the blog was because I thought it would look good on a resume. You know, when I was applying for jobs, it looked like I'd had more interest in the topic. And that's where right. I thought it was going. And then I began getting requests from these companies being like, hey, we're starting a community. We found your blog. Can we hire you to help? And I'd be like, I guess. I mean, I suppose I could do that. And mm. then it just didn't stop. Um, and I think luck played a big role. I think I mm. got in early at something that was growing quite quickly. So timing was definitely a big factor. I think the other thing, um, and this is important maybe to anyone that wants to be a consultant or build any sort of following audience, is that I've always followed that woodpecker strategy, you know, where mm. a lot of people that I knew who had community blogs when I first began, they jumped from one thing to another thing. They got involved in social media and then Instagram right. and then influence and all this thing. And they're doing that, you know, one tap on each tree and they're never getting anywhere. It just feels like they're always jumping from one thing to another. Whereas I've always felt, I'm like, this is my lane or this is my tree and I'm just tapping, tapping, tapping until I get that worm. Mm. And I've, I've always thought of it like that. Like my strategy Feverbee has been at the highest level the same for like since we began, you know, the way right. we, acquire, we acquire clients has, generally hasn't changed the the way that we promote ourselves hasn't changed. The, the type of work and the quality of work we're doing has changed dramatic, uh, dramatically. But hmm. I feel the I feel just focusing on a single field, a single target audience. I think that's that's worked incredibly well for us. And I feel the key is patience. Like even when, because for a long time the tide went the other way. Like I was doing, you know, hosted brand communities. That was my focus because that's what the gaming space was on for a long time. Social media came, came, came along and everyone kind of like went to that. But I stayed in that kind of more narrow lane. Right. But it turns out there's a lot of work there. There's like a lot of work, a lot of clients and not everyone wants, you know, a Facebook account. And so mm -hmm. I think staying focused takes patience. It takes discipline. But if you're convinced you're on the right track, then it works. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but that's how I think about it. Like there's always been that same approach. Right. No, no, I think uh, it kind of touched upon what I want to unpack, which is you, it, it became, it came to you as an accident, right? Like, so like one of the, the reason I asked that question is, uh, I saw your experience on LinkedIn. I think you've never worked for a company as a community builder, if I'm not wrong, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're fundamentally a consultant from the beginning, right? Like uh, you've been helping communities with their strategy design and, you know, implementation and whatnot. So is that true or did you work somewhere that... Almost true. In some gaming communities, I was paid for like that work, but that was like when I was young. So I wouldn't say the pay was that high, but like, yeah, I was paid for some of the early roles, um, but then I've been a consultant since 2010 i think i worked wow, for the actually, I, worked, I worked for the the united nations in geneva for about a year um so aside from from that um yeah and what what is like uh, your advice for people uh who are in the crossroads like hey do i have to pick a brand 
work there, understand the niche, get into the weeds, like, you know, get my hands dirty or do I have to be a consultant where I get to work with many brands, you know, depend on my schedule. What do you uh, suggest for people to pick the path, especially for, for those who are on the crossroads? It's been such an interesting year because so many people I know have sadly lost their jobs. Um, mm. And a lot of them are now decided to become a consultant. So there's been this influx of new consultants into the space. Um, I hope it works out well, but I think it's going to be difficult for them initially because first, in an economic down, downturn, consultancy is the first thing that gets cut, and it should be, honestly. Um, and so it, there's there's less work around than what there was before the current situation we're in. Um, I think the other challenge is that what people think consultancy is and what it is can be very different things. And so a lot of these folks tend to end up in freelance roles where they're not consultant, but they, they have, they, they're like making a living and that's uh, great. Hmm. I think what you've got to love if you're a consultant is not just doing the work because hmm. um, there's lots of people that think they can do the work. I think people have to have a means of getting the work and to get the work it, and it, it's, it's competitive as well. You know, like imagine if someone's going to become a consultant today, how are they going to compete against, let's, let's say me, um, how are they going to compete against me or the other consultants that have been doing this for a long time? Right. You know, what advantage do they have that we don't? Because we know how to sell. We know how to get clients. We've got case right. studies and testimonials and all those yeah. things. And so I think the challenge, if you want to become a consultant, is you've got to have this unfair advantage in a way that um, mm -hmm. makes you easy to hire. Um, that means you're either going to be cheap, which I, which I hope you don't choose, or you're going to be very focused on a very particular niche or niche, mm -hmm. or it means you've got to have some sort of experience that no one else has, you know, like Erica Cool is, is great. Cause she's like worked with Salesforce and all that success there. Mm -hmm. And so if you want like that kind of experience, you know, you hire her, mm -hmm. Brian, um, uh, Oblinger, like another awesome yep. guy, you know, worked with Chorus for a long time and is mm -hmm. well connected into that kind of space. And he has that podcast with Erica. So there's like an unfair advantage that no one else can have. Right. For me, I think because I've been blogging for a decade, I, you know, I've got like that kind of audience and reputation that other people don't begin with. Mm -hmm. um, John, John O'Bacon, another great guy, you know, has been in the developer space for so long, that track record. And so there's that unfair advantage. And I feel mm -hmm. if you're getting started today without that unfair advantage, it's going to be very difficult to build a consulting mm. practice that you want to build. And mm. so I think if you want to be a consultant, you've got to be very comfortable with getting the work. Like you've got to be really comfortable with getting the work and you've got to assume it's going to be so much harder than what you think it's going to be. Mm. Um, and also like there is something in, you do get to work with lots of different organizations, but what I love about consulting is two things. Um, one is it's a puzzle. Like it's a mm. puzzle. You get pieces of the puzzle. You have to find and uncover different pieces and you try to find the right solution, you know, with the information that you have there. And that's mm. really exciting. Like it's really exciting to guide a client through that process. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other thing is there's so many different skill sets involved, you know, like to be a good consultant, in my opinion, at least, you've got to be comfortable public speaking, facilitation, mm. 
Mm. You've got to be comfortable writing, uh, developing presentations, uh, right. bringing stakeholders with you on the journey. You've got to have a good amount of confidence to do that. You've got to like, and, it, and, it's, and you've got to have like analytical skills and, you sure. know, um, maybe uh, programming skills. Like there's such a wide range of different skills that are relevant here. And that's what's quite um, mm. exciting yeah. about it. And so I think, and obviously, you know, if you're working in-house, I won't pretend to be an expert on that. I haven't done it enough. But I think the benefit of working in, in-house is you get to see the project through. Like the right. great thing about consultancy is you get to work with lots of different organizations, but you don't get to own the outcomes. Mm. You know, like that's, that, that can be painful at times because you can help implement them, but it's not 100% reliant upon you. Whereas right. if you're working in-house, you are responsible for the outcome and it must be exciting to see it through. Mm. There's a great um, Steve Jobs quote that your audience should look up about consulting. If they type in Steve Jobs consulting on you on YouTube, they, they, they will find it. I think that's worth reflecting upon for sure. Mm, yeah, we'll definitely include that in the show notes. But what, what, what you said is true, right? Like it's a very competitive space, I would say. Uh, and getting a job might be kind of like uh, easy because you only have to impress once someone that you want to work with. Yeah. And on top of it, you get like, you know, you have to, uh, of course you build stuff on top of it. You introduce, you innovate, you, you bring these new ideas, how to build community and whatnot. But I must have, I must, I can't even imagine like, you know, the stress of being a consultant. So talk to me about like, you know, how the process of uh, a community consultant, like what should one do? Uh, unfair advantage, yes. That's more like, like a meta skill that people bring to the table, but operations-wise or on the tangible side, what should people actually have to do? Is there like a checklist or a playbook or blueprint that you want to share with the folks who are listening? So I actually wrote about this in my consultancy blog. I don't know if you know this. I have a separate blog for consulting as well. So oh. I wrote about this this week, and there's I think there's four there's four there's four layers to it to being a successful consultant, building a following, and attracting work. Um, I think the first layer to be successful is that you've got to have unique skills. What tends to happen is that a consultant will work for a large brand. They mm-hmm. will either decide to leave or they'll have to leave because of what's going on at the moment. And they'll try to set themselves up as a consultant. Um, and then it's a struggle because they'll say, I've had 12 years of experience working in this in this industry. And they might sadly realize that people don't care that much. Um, like, it's great they have to experience. It's better than having six years. But, like, the difference between, like, 12 years and 10 years or eight years, you know, what can okay, you do yeah. that someone else can't, you know? Right. What can you do? And mm. fundamentally, consulting is being able to offer a unique set of skills that other people don't have. Mm. So with Feedly, for example, we began focusing very much upon the psychology of communities. We moved more into like the data side. And when I say we're data driven, it's because, you know, I hired, you know, a colleague of mine, Dr. Pavel, who's got a PhD, you know, to do data analytics for us and to do mm. deep insights and have frameworks and processes behind it. Um, so we, there's got to be a special, a unique skill set that you have. And I think one of the best things consultants could do is to first make a list of the skills they think they have that no one else has and be honest about it because they might be surprised about that. And second, deliberately decide what their roadmap is. You know, what is your personal roadmap? What skills are you going to acquire? 
the one of the fantastic things today, which I didn't have when I started, is that you can learn anything. Like all the online courses available today, you can specialize in facilitating in facilitation, you can specialize in negotiation, you can specialize in sales, you can specialize in design, you can specialize in all these different things. Yep. But I think fundamentally, you've got to have a unique set of skills to begin with, you know, mm. experience is good, but it just gets you in the door. It doesn't win you the business, I think. Mm. And once you have the skills, I think the next level up is, what is your unique perspective? So I think a common mistake I see, or at least what I feel is a mistake, is a lot of people when they write or they try to promote themselves, they end up writing really generic um, content. And it's content that they won't remember a year from uh, from now. Mm. And I'll, I'll read articles like how to say thank you to your members or how to not burn out, um, how to, I don't know, articles like that, which they're not bad, but they're not, if you're trying to get business, you've yeah. got to be writing about the problems that your prospects face and how you can solve them. You've got to be writing about what is the future of the industry based upon your unique skills you know, mm -hmm. and experience, and what do they need to do to get there? You've got to be helping clients solve the problems they have, because mm. then they're going to be, you're, you're going to be that person that they reach out to and be like, hey, I know you've written about this. I know you've sold this for this client. What can you do? And I think a lot of people don't invest enough time in the skills and research. So for example, we schedule a bunch of calls each week with prospective clients and people that we know to find out what challenges they're having and how do they solve them today? What worked, what didn't work. Mm. And over time you build up this incredible collection of knowledge right. that other people don't have information. You can't search for in a search engine. And a lot of the content that we write, especially I think our best stuff comes from that. It comes from mm. those researching the, that research and those interviews and those calls and understanding, you know, things that are hard in which vendors to trust, which price points should you be looking at? What does that whole journey look like? And so I think you need that skills and experience. And then the next day up, you need that unique perspective. And I think, um, what's the best way to say is you've got to be willing to highlight things that, you know, people will disagree with. Um, that's it's one of the hardest thing. things. I think if you are only sharing things that people agree with, you're just sharing common knowledge, right? I mean, right. everyone knows it, so there's no point in sharing it. Right. And there's like a river of videos and blog posts that are rushing through or gushing through like this industry every single day. Mm. And so none of it really stands, stands out because it all kind of blends into each other. Um, so you've got to be willing to take a stand on things that you believe in and you care about. Mm. And you've got to accept that what resonates really strongly with someone you might want to reach is someone else is going to really disagree with. And they're going to be vocal about that because oh. the more we disagree with something, the more vocal we become. Right. Um, and so you've got to be willing to take that stance. You've got to be willing to be criticized. Like for me, I don't want to offend or hurt anyone. And I never name in in individuals but when all organizations are doing something that i don't feel is right or the best practice i'm happy to say it because i think it helps other people learn right and so very often like even like this week has talking about this community everywhere approach which is where i feel the industry is going um but there's people that are right are writing to me and saying you know why they disagree with me it can't be measured organizations aren't designed for that i'm like that's great. Mm. And I think if you're not getting any criticism, there's a real danger you're not writing anything worth criticizing. Mm. Um, and that's a concern. Good point. And then I think the next day up from that, 
uh, is use tactics that other people aren't using. Hmm. Like at some point we all decided that content marketing was going to be about blog posts and blog posts work for me, but I've had a head start doing it for 10 years. If I was going to start today, I might look at videos or I might look at a comprehensive guide or I might look at online tools that people can use in my website, find right. interesting tactics that other people aren't using. And then finally habits. Um, like I feel if you consistently work hard and have the same habits every single day, you're going to succeed. So for me, you know, I spend 30 minutes like reading like each morning, like different mm. books in the sector and you get through like 30 or 40 books a year just doing that. Mm. You know, each morning I'll send out a message to someone that I want to work with. And that means I send out 240 of these a year and right. we get business from that. So those kind of habits really compound, compound over time. And if you want to get better at anything, mm. embrace those habits, like really embrace those habits, have a routine that you can stick with and works for you. Right. Um, but let me pass it back to you. I've been talking for a while. No, 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 no. This is great. I feel like I love the way you kind of have that breakdown about a bunch of things. And I don't know if you realized, but you've also given the audience, the listeners, the content strategy as well, <laughs> right? I don't, I want to, I want to pinpoint one thing. I love the way you're having these calls with your potential clients. And even though they don't convert, but you will know the challenges they are facing. And that's a great opportunity to create a content piece on that particular topic, give value to them and find people like them who face the same challenges. That's a, that's a killer strategy. I would say. It's not just, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I would say it's, 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 it, I think you know, that's probably that's what you're doing, but I would say it really works well, blends well with anything, right? Like anything that you want to create on, on the internet, you want to get people's attention, talk to a bunch of folks, really understand where their, where their like pain points are, like the specific skills you have install on top of it. And be vocal about it. That's what you said, right? Like be vocal about it, take a stance and repeat that a thousand times. I feel like, you know, you're onto something like, you know, I, I love that the whole structure, what you said. So just want to acknowledge that. I think, I think some people um, don't realize that if you can sit down and write an article, you know, like I think this. Mm hmm. No one really cares. I mean, some people care. Your opinion might be especially unique and, and you know, and that. But generally speaking, if it's easy mm. to write the article, it means that someone else has probably written it already. Mm. It's, you're probably not adding a lot of value. Um, what is interesting is content that is so densely packed with information that's so useful that people have never been able to get before because no one else has said, uh, has the initiative that you do or the time that you do to interview, you know, the top 20 people in your industry about a topic, learn exactly what they do, what worked, what didn't work, be armed with all those examples, use mm. that to create a template or a resource that other people can ben can benefit from. Mm. Like it should take time to write great content. It should be difficult to write great content. Mm. The more difficult and the more effort it takes, the more valuable it's going to be. Mm. And I think, if you try to rush it and you just sit down and say a bunch of your thoughts and you pick a generic topic that doesn't really work. Mm. I also think you've got to focus on problems that if you want to be a successful consultant, focus on problems that organizations spend a lot of time and money on. Mm. Like those are the problems to focus in on. 
And there's so many times you'll read someone's site and they'll be like, that's not really a big problem that people have, or at least what clients have. It might be interesting right. to you, but it might not be interesting to the people that you want to reach. And what's interesting is that the content of mine that's most popular, that gets shared the most, is never the content that attracts clients. Mm. You know, if I write yeah. something really niche and specific about a problem that a client had or a couple of clients have had, that resonates far more, even though it might only resonate with, say, 20 people in the audience that we, that, that we, that we reach because they can't get that information from anywhere else. Mm. Or they could if they interview each other. But like we're compiling that, and that took a lot of time to do and create. And so I think you've got to aim for those niches or those niches that aren't satisfied elsewhere. You've got to focus on the problems that cost organizations a lot of time and money and you've got to push yourself and hmm. really learn from the people that you're trying to reach and i think that's what helps um yeah and it seems like you have a lot of grip uh on content creation and you're literally using that as a as a weapon you know to get things done okay. right and because i feel you like you said you've been writing for so long and you've been creating and you know these insights really work and you have these strategies like that are very much specific to your specific uh, skill set. What are the other things that you observe that you have you ever think about? Okay, what are the other things I should do? Content creation is a piece of it. Uh, anything else you discovered lately or in experience, consultant should focus on the things already you mentioned. But okay, you also have to rely on I don't know, like for example, SEO marketing. Just, just saying out loud. I don't know if it makes sense, but something that that mm. also moves the needle, right? Uh, anything that you discovered in your journey? I think the critical thing, and this won't be a surprise to anybody at all, is relationships. Um, I feel the more trusted you are within the space you're in, um, the more work you're going to get. And everything that you should do should build trust within your space. And when I'm talking about creating con uh, content, you know, we do, I do blog posts because that's what I've been doing for years. It's, you know, more difficult right. for me to change. If I was starting today, I'd probably use different type of content. But, you know, I used to do these trips to the USA like once or twice a year, or like once a year, actually. Like, I don't think I did it twice, but like where I would go through maybe five to 10 cities and I'd look at my MailChimp list and I'd see who was in each city. Mm. And I'd say, hey, do you want a coffee? Do you want to meet up? Do you want to meet up? Do you want to meet up? And it costs maybe three grand or so, which isn't a small amount of money. Right. But I could meet with maybe 30 people on that mm. trip, You know, 30 people, organizations that I wanted to meet and connect with. Mm. And I think that's the value in having an audience is that once you have an audience, there's so many things that you can do with that. You know, you can look up where people are from. Or if I'm in the same city, I can invite five people to a meet a meetup like that night. I'll right. pick up the cost of that. And it, and it's worth it because you build those relationships. And what happens usually is nothing comes immediately from it. Mm -hmm. But down the line, you'll get a referral or a recommendation or someone will just get to know you. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I like him. I trust him. You know, like, and when there is potential work, they're more likely to, like, bring you in. Mm. What happens more often is that they will refer you to some to somebody else. And you never know where these relationships are going to lead. Mm. So, Phoebe, so Phoebe, um, Phoebe Venkat, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, um, yeah. it's fantastic. I met her at some random meetup uh, maybe seven years ago, you know. <laughs> 
and she referred me to someone at uh, Salesforce who sponsored our our events and then ends up spending almost like six figures in sponsorship with us over, wow. uh, over over the years. And then when Phoebe went to Facebook, she hired us to work, you know, with mm-hmm. her there. Um, and then we were working with Okta year, years later and Phoebe was ready to leave Facebook. And so we helped get her that job at Okta, mm. you know, and so then she, then later she hired us to do another project at <laughs> Okta and now she joined us. And I feel like the more relationships you have, right. and obviously the more goodwill, the more you're willing to help other people, the more it comes back to you. And I think we all know that, but we don't, we know it and it sounds good, but we don't pursue it as a strategy. And I don't know why, why we don't. Like if you've got the opportunity to meet someone in person, do it. Right. If you're gonna, if I'm in say San, say San, San, uh, San, San Francisco, I want to meet as many people as possible. Right. Like when we go to events um, like CMX or any of the the big events, we make a list of all the people that we want to meet, maybe right. thirty people or so, and then we reach out to all of them individually. We find times, and so we're so busy meeting as many people as possible and. I see some people just like standing around on their phone and I don't get that. Like, I think this is the most amazing opportunity you have. And in these meetings, you never have to sell. All you have to do is just be someone that, that they connect with, that they like, or Bella, you can ask them, you know, what are the challenges they're having just so you know, and then you can create more content about that. And so you never know where these relationships are going to pay off, but they always seem to, you know, like you always have to invest in them and keep them alive, but they always seem to pay off. And, you've got to treat that as a strategy and you've got to be committed to doing it. You're like really committed to doing it. Yeah. I, the, the, the straight answer for, you know, for that question is it's freaking hard, you know, you coming from UK, packing your bags, getting on a plane, getting a hotel meeting, like going to seven different cities in the U S meeting like 30 people, sharing coffees, drinking so much of caffeine, it's freaking hard, right? Like that's, it's a hard job. I feel that's why a lot many people, I, I believe, even not just for community consultants, but just in general, founders don't do things that don't scale because it's freaking hard. Like when we went to CMX last year, we gave the t-shirt to every single individual. Like we packed like probably like 150 t-shirts in a, in a big scale. Yeah, one just out there yeah so it's freaking hard and we 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 sweated so much we were going to like people no meeting no agenda hey we have a t-shirt for you we have a five dollar coffee for you waiting that is freaking hard and we it's it's not easy and if if you ask me like do you want to do it again i was like no hell no hell no (laughs) (laughs) but to your point if you want to move forward and like to go beyond like the, the expertise you have and the, we want to really build a business out of it. I think that's the right way, right? Like pe- meeting people. And I'm so glad you mentioned about relationships because like you said, it baffles me as well when people don't take it as a tactical strategy. They think that this is a fluffy thing, right? Like everybody talks about relationships, yeah. but very less people yeah. actually kind of like, you know, make the point. But yeah, didn't mean to interrupt. I get maybe five to 10 messages on LinkedIn a day from people that I don't know right. being like, Hey, would you like five leads for your business? Or are you looking for a designer? And I'm like, I don't know who you are. Like if someone shows up at my front door and says, do you, do you want to buy X? I'm not going to buy that because I don't know them. I didn't trust right. them. I have no reason to like, they've just showed up in town. I don't, I don't trust them, you know? Right. 
But if you've had that coffee, if you've invested that time, right. it pays off. I think a related point to this is that when you become a consultant, you're not becoming a consultant. Mm -hmm. You're starting a business. Mm -hmm. And if you're starting a business, you can't expect everything to be free. Mm. And I think there is a danger in this, that you try to keep your costs really, really low. But right. if you're opening a restaurant or almost any other type of business, there would be costs involved with mm. that. And I feel like too often we try to do everything for free mm. and it takes a lot longer. And it, it's not cheap. You know, like if you're in the US, it saves a lot of money, obviously, right. but it's not cheap to like travel to the US, you know, especially now. And hotels in certain parts of the West Coast are incredibly yeah, expensive. Ridiculous. You know, paying 200 $300 a night or more is, is expensive. And But if you get one client out of it, and if we get, say, like, you know, a client for like 40 or 50 grand out of it, that's a win. It pays over, you know. And we also know that every client is likely to lead to more clients. It's likely to lead to case studies. Mm -hmm. It's likely to lead to referrals. And so the more people we have in that ecosystem, the better. And I look at the business that we get, um, you know, the last couple of months, and I trace back the first interaction. And so many of them came by one of these, like, coffees. Some of them came by referrals, someone that we had a coffee with. And... And also, I think the other thing is that you've got to like it. Like if, if you're dreading it, yep. it's it comes across, and and it's not it's not ideal, right. honestly. It's not ideal to fly to the USA and be jet lagged and have <laughs> coffees. I've had like two, I've had like two breakfasts and two lunches in the same oh day, you God. know, just because people are. That's the way it works. <laughs> I mean, it's not healthy to do that. It's not healthy to visit like three cities in the same day, and but. You've got to love it. You know, you've got to really enjoy it. You've got to enjoy getting the work as much as doing the work right. because you've got to find a mechanism that works for you to get the work that's enjoyable. Right. If you hate it, it comes across that you hate yeah. it. So I don't really do like outbound sales calls. I've never reached out to someone that I don't know. You know, mm. everyone that I reach out to, I've had some sort of contact or relationship with before. Um, and that helps a lot. And so... Yeah, you just got to enjoy yeah. that. You got to really enjoy that and make the most of it, you know. Yeah. Um, I love that. Love to hear that. So let's tone down a little bit and let's talk about some of the fun things yeah. I have for you, which is uh, you've been blogging for a while. And how did you even come up with the name Fever B? It is so like, you know, it's not it's not a very straightforward name. Like Fever is something, B is like, in, like a thing. How did you like, you know? <laughs> came up with that name yeah so i'll give like a short story for this so essentially when you start a company you need a comp you need a name where the domain name is free otherwise it's going to be a mess right, right? and so i'd re i recently read this richard branson bi biography and where he had like virgin island and virgin coke right. and virgin atlantic and all these virgin names. mobile and, and everything. Like, well, I'm, yeah yeah and i thought well when i'm a billionaire i'm gonna need like a naming st st structure for all of this because i thought that the naming part would be the hard part of this right. um if it's not <laughs> and so i thought like so i was like well feet or fever i like it's got the kind of vi of, vi of virality around it right. and then i was looking at fever link fever island fever frog Wow. Um, and then Fever B was like what my uh, ex-wife um, loved. So I was like, okay, yeah, I trust your judgment. <laughs> uh, and so Fever B it is. And I was, I was happy with the name until like a year or two afterwards. Oh. I saw an advert for Fever Tree on 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 the tube. Oh. You know, like the drink? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That in... 
Yeah, and I was like, man, fever tree. And now what's hilarious is that we sometimes get messages that are confused. <laughs> you know, like we get people that, that have heard of us, but they will tweet me or they'll email me instead of like fever tree, which is a, yeah, thing. It's an interesting side effect. But that's the story. Every, every PR is good, right? Like there is no bad PR. <laughs> Everything. That's the, honestly, I'm going to call, call you out on that. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> of course, there's bad PR. <laughs> like, of course there is. Like all these companies all the time that do dodgy stuff. And yeah, just, you know, just look at Twitter. Twitter now, if you don't think there's bad PR, of course there is coming. <laughs> like, I think being ignored, I don't know if being ignored is worse, mm-hmm. but like, I think it's better at times, you know, not to generate negative pub, pub, publicity. No, no, I feel, so if you have a great plan and you do controversial stuff, then it works. But if you have a bad plan and you're just like, you know, being being intentionally bad, that is a different story. So probably like, you know, I think if you're being intentionally controversial, mm. that's quite divisive. And I don't agree with that. If you're standing up for something that you believe mm-hmm. in, that you truly believe mm-hmm. in, I'm, I'm with people all the way on that. But if you're just like, hmm, what's going to be divisive? Right. Then essentially, you're just those like Russian trolls during, <laughs> during the, the election, you know, right. like you're just trying to build this. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I feel like they're... they're I know in my head where that lie, 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 lie is. Right. But I can't always uh, articulate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're true. You're true. I feel uh, that's what Elon Musk is doing right now. He's been trolling when, like, ten years ago, he's been talking about <laughs> yeah. like moving humanity to humanity to the Mars. But anyway, let's not that's talk true. about like bullshit. But uh, so, a couple of other questions about you know consulting, right? Like. It's, you know, it, it actually applies a little bit about, a little bit to founders too, when it comes to like convincing decision makers, right? What is your strategy, you know, apart from providing value, which is our like, which are like, think pretty well known, like you said, everybody knows, you know, if you provide value and you've enough showed your specific skills, like, you know, people will pick, but what are the things that you want to pass on to the listeners? Especially, hey, this is how you convince uh, about like, you know, what going with me rather than my competition, for example. Yeah, um, I like this question a lot. So I've, I'm, I'm going to brag a little here just to make the point. Like I've sold millions of dollars in consultancy over, over the years, you know, and I've had pretty much no sales training at all. Mm-hmm. And if I was to summarize it into maybe two things, one would be trust, like real trust. You know, don't lie to clients. Um, always build trust. Be honest about what you can do and what you can't do. Like um, we were on a call just the other day where the client's like, oh, we need this, this, and this. And this would be like a huge client here. You know, we really, <laughs> really want to work with mm. them. But we just said, hey, you know, like two, like two of these things we can absolutely ace. But this last thing, we don't think is the right fit for you. We don't think we'd be the right person to do that. You know, like, um, and you build trust by that. They might not work with you, but like they might work with you in the future. They might recommend right. you compared with, say, if, if we promise we could do something that we're not sure we can, we, we can do, that goes badly, then they're going to, you know, say bad things about us. They're going to be unhappy with us. They're never going to hire us again. You know, right. like 
And so there's a lots of situations where you're going to have to make a decision about, are you promising things you can actually do that you believe in? Or are you going to take the longer, or are you going to play the longer game where you build trust? Mm -hmm. And every single thing you do should build trust. If you look at what we've done over the last year, we've relaunched our website. What we found is that anyone could put logos on their website. You know, I've worked with this brand, this brand, this brand. And we found that honestly, a lot of the consultants haven't. Like they might have, you know, worked with a vendor that worked with that brand or their past company might have worked. Like it's not quite the same thing. So what we have now are video testimonials, like dozens of video testimonials of each client that we work mm. with saying that, hey, you know, we worked with them. This was our experience. These are the results. Because you can't fake that. If a client's not happy with you, they're never going to jump on a testimonial you know, and do that yeah. for you. Um, so I think that really helps. I think the key decision makers, if we're asked about a competitor, like I think a golden rule is you should never say something about a competitor behind their back that you wouldn't say to their face. Mm. Um, so I feel that FIVB has a unique skill set in certain areas. And so if they ask how we compare to a competitor, I'll say, well, I think we have a unique skill set in this. You know, I think they're very good at this. I think we're very good at this. And you can make your decision based upon that. But you don't want to be that person that is like, well, they're the worst. You know, I, I hear they sell drugs to kids. You know, you don't want to be like that kind of like guy. But it's always a temptation there. And it just looks right. bad to trash a competitor. And also, you're going to meet these guys again. And it's going to get back to them if you right. do. So I think build, building trust to every single journey. Um being good at what you do, building trust, um, being honest, um, being clear. I mean, there's lots of tactics, but right. I don't care about the tactics much as trash. The other thing is that at every point in the sales journey, you should add value to it. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you might have someone that reaches out to you about doing some work for them. And, and what's common is that you'll be like, well, what problem do you have? Okay, you know, I think we can solve that problem. That doesn't really, you're not adding value to that you're just learning about them and you know learning about them is good but what you could say is like all right the, these are like the major trends that like we're seeing at the moment i would love to share these trends like with you this is how it's going to impact your, your business you know would you be would you like to be more involved in trying to solve that then in the next call you can collaborate on the ways that you can solve that you can share what's worked with other organizations when it comes to like the decision point like when you write a proposal your proposal shouldn't be rejected mm. because everything in that proposal should be the summary of what you've agreed so far. Mm. And I think there's always a danger of trying to rush to the proposal, like having a 30 minute call, writing a proposal and thinking that's going to land. <laughs> of course it's not going to land. Like your contact, especially if it's for a high amount, you know, if we'd clients say like, like 50 grand or something, like a community manager that we've written a proposal for is never going to get that approved. They're going to need their like boss or boss's Absolutely. boss to approve that. And the boss's boss can be like, I don't know. This. They're going to have the same challenge I was talking about before. Like, I don't know this person. I have no idea, you know, what who they are, what their background is. So the, before you can submit the proposal, you've got to know the people that you're submitting it hmm. to. So you've got to say, hey, you know, I want you to bring in these people to the meeting so they get to know me, I get to know right. them. And if they can't even get that stakeholder in the meeting, there's no way that proposal is going to be approved. Right. It's just not going to happen. Um, so you've got to add value each day of that journey at, at the executive stakeholder level. Mm. Like you've got to hi highlight, you know, what their competitors are doing. Perhaps you've got to come armed to every meeting with value that you can add. So while your competitors perhaps are just saying, well, I do this, this, and this, 
you can add value and be like, this is what your competitor did. This is a mistake. This is what I think your journey should look, you know, like that's what I think helps. So trusted adding value at every interaction is what I would strongly. I love, I love the, the way you're thinking, which is number one, a, you give your best, you try to build a relationship, but you are not too attached to them. Like you don't, you're not desperate to like, Hey, I want, I want to work with you, you know, please do something or renegotiate and not that. I think what you're trying to do is very more a matured way of building business, which is I'm okay to like, let you go, but here's what we can do for you. Right? Like, so I really love the way you put things. Like, I think you win customers trust based on your strengths, not on your competitor's weakness, right? You basically display your strengths. This is what we can bring to the table and doing this is the right way. And it's really hard, right? Like it's, it's easy to say, but I can only imagine like, you know, how you're pulling off consulting for so long by, by these principles. So definitely want to like, you know, give you flowers for that. (laughs) Give me flowers. Um, I think the other part of this is that we're in this position where we can do that because there's a runway that we Mm. have, right? So over the years, you know, we've, had investments, you know, we've built capital in the business, we've made a profit every single year. So now we can go, honestly, a couple of years without having any clients Mm. and we're fine. And if you don't have that, like this is the other thing, if you're starting a consultancy and you need work tomorrow, otherwise you're on on the Mm. street, I'd be very concerned about that because you're going to be desperate and you're going to promise everything and that's not the right way of going about Mm. it. Um, And so I think it helps to have a runway that you're giving yourself to invest in yourself to build connections, build contacts, be able to position yourself the right way. All those kind of things really helps. Mm. And I think it's always important that the work you're doing is work you want to be doing. Um, And so we do turn turn down work and sometimes people like reject us as well because we're not the right fit. Um, But it's like dating in a way. You want to work with the clients that are the right fit for you and you have to know who those clients are. Mm. Like you're trying to get every kind of business out there, that's probably going to be a challenge. You have to have a very clear idea of whether you're going after the very competitive top of the market, the less competitive middle of the market, or whether you're going like right at the bottom when you're, you know, projects that are low value, but you can do lots of them, right. you know, like you've got to be very clear about what kind of level you're going. Nice. At. And what are some key mistakes that you think consultants make, community consultants, they make like when, that you observed like, okay, or you made in your past that you want to like, you know, share with people. (laughs) So many mistakes. Um, I think when I began as, as young, right. I must've been like 24, 25 when I began doing this. And there's a lot of insecurities that you carry with Mm. you at that age. And so I'd always be worried that people would look at me and be like, who's that kid, you know, and I look a bit younger than what I am. And so, I was always like paranoid about that. So I'd always like try to avoid like senior stakeholders or I feel I wouldn't deserve to be in that room. And that comes across, you know, and that meant I was often like presenting a strategy and be like, this is your strategy. Good luck. Because I didn't want to like get buy-in and support for it. I didn't want to do the hard work of uh, those kind of things. And I think that still happens today with other consultants. Um, But I don't have an insight into what, most other consultants are doing. I'd assume they're making the same mistakes that we that we uh, we made or I made mm. as well. I think that's one. Um, I think not realizing when something isn't working was another. 
Like I spent far too much time focusing upon these daily blog blog mm. posts, you know? And so I was building like awareness and more and more awareness and more awareness and more awareness of who we were, but I wasn't proving how good we were. Mm. Like I didn't invest in case studies and testimonials and all those things that you need to see right. because I was like, I was more like, I like Seth. I'm going to keep writing like <laughs> Seth, but Seth doesn't yeah. do consultancy work, you know? Right. Um, and so I was very stubborn about that. And I had employees at one point in time that tried to change my mind. I didn't listen to them. And I, and I really right. uh, regret that. Um, so I think being honest when something isn't working like, is really important. It's really hard to do. Like, and I think there's definitely some consultants that are in that space now. Um, I think a lot of consultants aren't charging mm. the right amount. Yeah, talk to me about the pricing. Uh, yeah. uh, is also, I want to, you know, understand like how do you price yourself like especially community is a weird <laughs> so it's not like it's not like yeah, yeah. a like a product consultant right like they are actually like a, like moving pieces because you go as a product consultant you tell them hey these are the ux ui pieces you have to work on these are the features whatever it is right like and it actually there is a there is a tangible outcome for a community consultant since it's such a big game it's a long game you launched an ambassador program with the brand where do you see results and how do you actually quantify that to your effort that you put so talk to me about that i am very curious about you know how do you match this question cuts across contracts um the kinds of services that you provide and then the pricing as well so I'll try and cover some some of it and just cut me off if you want to at some point. <clears throat> so I think a couple of things that are important is that if you're a consultant, and like I said before, <clears throat> you have a lot of influence over the outcomes, you know, but you don't control the outcomes. Like there's so mm. many things that can happen, which means in a contract, you are only accountable for the right. deliverables, you know, the key things that you hand mm -hmm. over to them. And that can be certain kinds of documents, that can be training, that can be those kinds of things. But you should never be responsible for um, how those deliverables mm. are used. Like the moment your contract, you know, makes you responsible for say a 50% growth in, in, in engagement, right. you're in trouble because things can change right. really fast. Let's imagine that, you know, what's happened over the last year is that community teams have suddenly been, mm. been cut. So imagine that your con that your contact, the person managing the com the community, is gone. You're never of going course. to get paid, no matter how yeah. good a work you do, right? And so, if you, in the at the contractual level, you're only accountable for the deliverables, and that's how it should work. You know, if the client thinks that you have to be accountable for how they use them, you can say, "Oh, we can have an ongoing deal," you know, where I provide ongoing advice right. and support, and each month you pay. But like fundamentally, you're on the hook for very specific things that you have full influence or most mm. influence over. I think that's important. I think another part of this is deciding what services mm. you provide. So I think one of the, when people think of consultancy, they think of st st strategy, right? I think that's yep. their instant go-to go thing. The reality is like most people working at most organizations, they love doing the strategy part of their job. Mm. Like they love doing it. They, they, they get to be creative and they know the industry and they want to call themselves a st st strategist. And so if that's the only thing that you provide, you're limiting the amount of work that mm. you can do. What you'll find out if you really research your audience and what they need, you'll find out that they need help on research or gaining internal support or 
all these other things that they can use in the strategy, but they might want to do the strategy. This isn't saying that you shouldn't mm. be a, a, strateg a strategist or offer it. Just that that's the most difficult mm. place to be. Um, so the kind of service you offer will greatly influence your the, the pricing mm. that you have. Um, and also, if you are a strategy consult, consult, consultant, be aware that everyone has a different definition of right. what that is. Is it a 100-page document at the end? Is it a whole series of different deliverables mm. that you create? Like, everyone has a different understanding of that. Um, so I think that's the other factor. <laughs> my voice a little. Um, I think when it comes to pricing, there's good advice mm. and there's bad advice. The bad advice is everyone should charge more. Like, that's so mind-numbingly <laughs> stupid. It's well, it's well intent intentioned, yeah. I think. It's more about like self-esteem and trusting yourself, but it's not connected to any financial right. reality at all. So pricing, there's only a couple of ways of doing it. Um, you might have a big project to be paid a monthly retainer for doing it. That's one model. It's not that common. Typically, you'll charge mm -hmm. a fixed rate and you'll get paid 50% at, at the beginning or 50% at the end. Unless it's a really high amount, in which case you might break it down into a monthly fee. And then some people say you should use value-based mm. fees. And there's some truth in that. Which let's imagine there's a customer support community out there that's generating, say, that's saving, say, $10 million mm -hmm. a year. And I'm going to increase that by 50%. So that would be an increase of what, like $5 mm. million? So then me saying, oh, this is going to cost you half a million? isn't a bad deal. Like it's value to them. It's right. value to me. And there's a lot of consultants that share this kind of advice. The problem with this kind of advice is that it's bullshit. Um, clients aren't idiots. So like they're not going to pay half a million dollars based upon a, form, a formula that you made up because what they're going to do is see what right. your competitors charge. And you're going to be bounded by that. You know, you might be better than your competitors and be able to charge more, but there's a certain level of boundary you can do that. And so with all those things in mind, I do think you should charge a fixed rate for a project. I do think you should get paid 50% upfront and 50% at the end. And then you've got to look at the specific pricing tiers by the services you offer. But even within this, there's a lot of complexity that goes into it. Like below five grand, I mean, organizations, this is going to be too low for big organizations to think that you're in the right um, ball, uh, ball, mm -hmm. uh, ballpark. But for smaller or organizations that make sense um, at around and it varies at around like five to ten to ten to ten grand that's usually small mm. a small project a couple of weeks maybe a training work, workshop something like that um, for like small to medium and maybe a big right. organization at larger organizations where you get into like you know the 20 grand plus level so I would guess that a lot of consultants are charging between 15 maybe 30 grand um, and that's usually for a couple of months. That's usually a big project. that will take up the bulk of your time if you're a solo consultant. Um, but there's fewer of them and there's more competition for that. Um, 30 to 50 grand is like where probably mm -hmm. a lot of the high level con con consultants play. And this is if you want to win con contracts at that level, your reputation is key. You've got to have so many case studies, testimonials, references. You know, you've got to, have, you've got to be mm. so good at selling those kinds of products to make it work above 50 grand it gets really interesting above 50 grand is the rfp mm. level where a lot of organizations they have to 
turn it into a request for proposal. And this is where like you go from swimming in this small pond to swimming with sharks. It's where you get into competition with like McKinsey right. or Accenture or the or bigger firms that specialize right. in RFP. And it means that your likelihood of getting deal drops from around a quite mm. high percentage, maybe you know, 50% plus to around 15%. Um because the competition is fierce. And then above a hundred grand, this is where you're looking at more agency style work, or maybe a project that lasts for a couple of years like or contract, over a year like, with lots of different things included, you know, like a really like mm-hmm. long-term thing. Above half a million, that's a a a a a agency work or McKinsey or something, you know, like and so as a solo consultant, unless you've got like Unless you're like Frank Gehry in architecture, you know, <laughs> right. it's not right. going to happen. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, you can dream about it. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of what I'll call s- success porn, mm. like, out there. But it's just a lot, a lot of it's just lies. And you can find consultants that claim, but yeah, a lot of yeah. it is just fibbing. Um, and so I think you've got to decide what kind of price mm. point makes sense to you. And that price, and, and the price point should depend upon the mm-hmm. services that you want to offer, the client you want to ta- mm. to, ta- to target, and your ability to get that kind and mm. deliver that kind of work. And I think the temptation is always to go after the big fish mm. in your sector, right? Like 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 we like we do, like right, Microsoft right. and Apple and all them. But like mm. that's going to take you years. It's going to take you years to build those relationships, to build that trust, to. Um, have a unique positioning to build the skill set of like selling at that level. Um, it's easier to get started to work at the small to mm. medium level. Um, so there's a lot of questions out there, but hopefully that gives no, no, some no. advice. I don't know how relevant. I love it. Is, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think you know. I appreciate you know. You took a like a depth, in depth like analysis or insights like that you shared in the last five minutes. It's really really helpful for people. I would say. Uh, yeah, a couple of questions before we wrap up. I I know we're like on time, but one thing, uh, one of want to ask like a personal story of you consulting at Fever B. What is like a crazy or an insane uh, client that you worked with that you actually like baffle your mind? Wow, this is like a new territory for me as well. Uh, you want to share something that that is like, okay, this, these guys are challenging me. I have to like deliver or I have to up my game. Is there a, like a, like a story that you want to share? Don't you, we don't need like details of the company where you work with, but. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to be like protect, um, the confidentiality we have with clients. I think if, if client is unique and we learn so much from every client that we work with, um, I love ones that are really complex and technical okay. and difficult. Like, I think that's a challenge that's really exciting. The more complex it is, the more challenging it is, and the more we learn. Um, I mean, there's some interesting ones that came Like, working mm. with Facebook was interesting. Like, when Phoebe worked there, like, work with them, because they recruit the best, you know? And so the talent in the room, and you notice it, mm. the ambition, the talent. I mean, the competition between them might be less <laughs> healthy, perhaps. But, like, there's a level of talent mm. there that's so, yeah, um high which is quite rare um 
trying to think of an organization that really blew me away. Um, do, 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 do. Also, I'm worried about the clients that yeah, I don't name here. You know, like if I say, oh, they're not as amazing, like I'm kind of worried about, like, um, I'm trying to think of one that we worked with recently. Uh, do, 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 do. Esri, like ESRI, like l- last year was really mm-hmm. interesting because what they're working on is mind blowing. The way that they, um, a lot of people don't put a lot of thought into how they mm. onboard a, ven- a vendor, but Esri do. You know, they they brought us in at the level of this is the history of the organization. Mm. These are our values. This is what we're about. They took us into their like show their showroom where we can mm. see the product and feel it. And I think that's always quite exciting. And so I'm really interested in that. Uh, Sephora mm. are really interesting because they're taking content from the community mm. and they're pulling it into the product pages. And that's really exciting to see that as well. On the on the data side, I think Microsoft, I think I can share this because they did a LinkedIn mm-hmm. s- session on this, but Microsoft are so interested in the way they use data to optimize their mm. community, to measure what they're doing, to have gig, to have gig, gig workers decide mm. what to pay them, how to check the, qu- mm. the quality of their work. They've thought really deeply about these kind of things. And that's always like very exciting to work on and very right. challenging to work on as well. And, I, and some of our current clients, like UiPath, you know, are fascinating because there are yep. so many different communities yep. in different parts of the world. You know, really, really interesting what they're doing. Um, yeah, so there's awesome. a lot of really yeah. appreciate you sharing. Sure. Uh, one last question: You wrote a whole book about this, yeah. about this, like how to build uh, a customer communities. Uh, you know, build your communities, like all about that. Uh, if you want to share after all these years of you know working with these clients how do you how do you, people actually or founders actually have to design and build a customer community successfully do you have like a like a talking points that you want to give ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're asking me that now at the end of the session um i think i'm trying to think of a simple answer to give because i think there's a lot of really simplistic advice about right. communities out there. And I think the problem is that the word community itself is too broadly used. And we need to be more specific about what we're talking about because there's completely different things that work. What works for building a customer support community? Won't work for a success community. And that might not work for an advocacy community. And that might not work for a peer, a peer, a peer group. And that might not work for a user group. So I think the first thing to get right is to really understand what kind of community are you building? Like, honestly, what kind of mm. community are you building? And then once you know that, you can really understand what does your audience really want and need? I think when communities go wrong, it's because they don't spend enough time mm. with their audience. So they'll create a community and then they'll just assume that people will participate in it because it's there. But they'll find out that, oh, you know, we created this customer support community. But what we're finding is that everyone is going, you know, onto our customer support channel to ask questions. Why would they use a community? They get answers from someone they know and trust, like straight, like straight away in customer support. Or they'll create a community and they won't realize that members already go somewhere else to satisfy that need. And they fail to develop a really unique positioning for that community. I think that's a challenge. I think... There's a lot of those strategic mistakes mm. that happen very early on and they're not challenged and not questions. And 
I think one of the things that hopefully we provide clients with is to get mm. the big decisions right. And it takes a lot of work, a lot of research. We spend so much time on calls and interviews, you know, and I think with like Esri, for example, we must have had like 30 calls with like stakeholders mm. throughout the organization, really understanding, you know, what their goals are, what their fears are, and trying to navigate through each of them. And I think there's not enough research that's done. It's, it's always like, oh, our competitor has, has a community or this organization has a community. Let's do right. what, what they did. And it often just doesn't work because all the other things aren't mm. in place to make it work. Um, I think without meaning to brag, I think my book right. tries to tackle the big things. You know, the big things in terms of getting the motivations right, getting the platform right, getting the psychology right, getting the tactics right. Um, so I think if you don't mind yeah, me yeah, liking the book, I think the book will help people right. get those big decisions, get those big decisions right. Um, also, consultancy from us, you know, might help as well. Um, but I think getting the big decisions right is 100% key because once you get the big decisions right, it's going to feel like you're swimming with mm. the tide instead of against it. Like if you're, if it feels like you're battling to get people to participate, the concept of the, is wrong. You've got to change something fundamental. And that usually means you've got to change the target audience or what the community is about or the platform or the person that's managing right. the community, you know, like, and so if it's not working, it's not usually a small change that's going to fix it. It's usually a big change and it's about figuring out which big change you're going to be comfortable um I love that. And I think on that note, we can wrap this because we can go on and on. And I know you're like, you're already like, you know, uh, tired and you look, but you look still very energetic in delivering the valuable answers. That's why I appreciate you. But yeah, thanks, Richard. And any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Anything that you want to plug? Please do, you know. I mean, everyone can always find more about us at FeverBeat dot com and reach out to me at richard at um i think the thing i pay attention to right now and the trend that i'm really keen to stress is that we're moving beyond platform-centric approaches to communities and that means we are going to need to change the strategies that we use because what worked five years ago isn't working today the way that people sh- the places where people share their expertise is different today than what it was five five years ago no one goes to a forum to share their best advice anymore. They answer questions there, but they go to YouTube, they go to all these other other channels. And so I think if there's one thing I'd be looking at at the moment, it's or two or two things. It'd be the measurement. How do we prove the value of this work? And then how do we change our strategy to reflect what's actually happening today? Like the trends that are happening that we can all clearly see are, hap- are happening today. And if you want help with that, please, please, please reach out to us. We would love to help. If not, then read my blog and there's, you know, as much advice as I can. You know, That's why I think, you know, you're, you're dubbed as one of the best people in the community because you unconditionally, like, you know, provide value. Yeah, I don't know yeah that, but right? yeah, no, this has been a very fun conversation and I learned a ton about consulting and, you know, I do appreciate you. Uh, sharing all the insights about how to go from zero to one as a consultant beyond like you know you know building community uh, tactics so thank you Richard and thanks for folks tuning in and uh, yeah stay stay tuned for yet another episode you know we'll be doing this more we'll bringing people like Richard on the show uh, so shout out to y'all for for listening and stay healthy and like curious cheers Thanks. Uh, I think we should be stopping if I'm not wrong.
Uh, I know. I'm. I'm so sorry. I feel like it's still recording, but.